Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and uh, I am joined by my two co-hosts, uh, Chris Dorides and Marissa DiNatale. Uh, hi, guys. How's it going? Going well, Mark. Good to see you. You always say that, Chris. It's it, always good to see you. Oh, oh no, yeah. I meant it's always going well. And he's always so. doing well. <laughs> oh, and he's yeah. always doing well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a good state of affairs, though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I you wouldn't so. tell me otherwise. You I think so. Me. Yeah, oh, I, I, I'd, I'd lay it out on the line. All right. Actually, he would. He yeah. would do. He would tell me. Yeah. He, You're talking he, about me personally, not the economy, right? So it's uh, opinion it, may differ. Indeed, I was talking about the the. Uh, but we could talk about the economy. We probably should talk about the economy. Um, <laughs> yeah, Marissa, you're doing okay. You're, I'm good. You're back yeah. up and running. You, yeah, okay. You're fit. Yeah. You're fit as a fiddle. Okay, good. Because I'm great. Okay, you're great. Okay, hundred percent. Good, good. And we have Excellent. a guest. Uh, Mr. Pinto, Ed Pinto. Good to see you, Ed. Likewise, Mark, uh, Marissa, Chris. And you're hailing from uh, Bethesda, you say? I am hailing from Bethesda today, yes. Yeah. And you, I know because you have a home in, don't you have a home in Tampa, I believe? Sarasota. Oh, Sarasota. Okay. Uh, okay. The, all right. Uh, the, the, Gulf Coast. Okay. Got the right coast. <laughs> yeah, right, got right coast, right coast. Yeah. Are you getting hit by that seaweed? problem is that an issue I, there? I, I just i've been reading about it no we haven't been hit um by that yet i i, I don't know if yeah we, uh, hopefully not i got so see weed pile uh yes i've been reading about that yeah, it's I'm heading worried. your way yeah. my mom lives yeah. in naples and yeah. i keep asking for the seaweed update yeah okay yeah well we're what 100 miles north of there we'll see Are, is she getting it marissa no is not it, yet not yet okay but Vero well, Beach, I the yeah. storm, right? Yeah, well, I have, I have a home in Vero, Ed, and uh, oh, that's on it, the other coast. The, it's the, the directly right. across from Sarasota, yeah, I think. Yeah, you can't on the drive East across directly, but easily. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right, right, and uh, they are there is some seaweed issues there. Yeah, yeah, some seaweed. It's not, it's not, uh, you know, you can't walk on the beach kind of problem, but you know, it's become, becoming more of an issue. Anyway, it's great to have you, Ed. Uh, we go back, I, I think. Certainly back to the financial crisis. Yes, probably 2008 would be my guess, somewhere around there. Yeah. Right. When you were doing all that work on Fannie and Freddie. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can remember, I think the first time I met you uh, was in New York City, and my assistant set up a meeting in some dive somewhere in the middle of Midtown. Do you remember this? And, I, and I, remember I thought you. you and you're, you're, I also met your brother. And Oh, is that right? Yeah, and then I then I was down into your office in outside of Philly. I remember that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, he. I remember this. We go. We're meeting Ed in this uh, hole in the wall in the middle of the middle, like very close to Penn Station, you know, uh, New York. And I'm going. I'm thinking to myself, why did he pick this spot? You know, you know, why why this spot? And it turns out my assistant picked it because she didn't know where. Oh, and, and Sarah, this uh, Sarah's on the line. My assistant's still; she's still. This, 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 this is no criticism, but she picked this spot because she thought it was easy to go to, and she didn't know, you know, where to go. And so, uh, we, yes. good job, yeah. Sarah. Good, good job, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Not that, not that Mark remembered it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> not that it didn't make an impression. Yeah, but, uh, it, it was fifteen years ago. But that's yeah. okay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, Oh, that, oh that, that is kind of bad, isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> well, we got off to a, a good start, and that was good. That's what counts, Sarah. 
It was that's okay. That's right. That's right. Good coffee, as I yeah, recall. Yeah. Good coffee. Good coffee. They're keeping uh, expenses down, right? Yeah. Expenses right. down. That's oh, yeah. Right. We didn't blow the budget. That's for sure. That's so. good. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Ed, 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 you are now at the American Enterprise Institute, and you've been there for quite some time now. Yes. Uh, since about 2008, also. Yes. Oh, okay. Great. And you run. Is it called the housing center? What is it called? Housing the housing center, center, the AI housing center. Yes. Yeah, housing center. And you got some really good folks there. I know. Uh, Thank you. Steve Olner and. Uh, Steve, Steve just retired. Oh, did he? Okay. Uh, last month. Oh, okay. After um, helping, you know, co-found the housing center back in 2013. Uh, and he was with AI since 2011. Before that, he was at the Fed. But uh, Steve's uh, shoes are being filled quite ably. Uh, they're hard to fill. Uh, by Joe Tracy. Oh, Joe. Joe's there. Okay, cool. So yeah, Joe he's really is, good. Uh, as a senior advisor and uh, um, uh, uh, I forget, non-resident senior fellow at AEI. Um, and so Joe started right, literally uh, the weekend, at, the, the first workday after Steve's retirement. So we, uh, and, and that's been great. We really, uh, uh, like Joe, he's got also yeah, he's good. experience in the Fed. And then we have the rest of our staff, Tobias and CC and yeah. Arthur and all the others. Yeah, it's a great group. And you do Thank really you. good work. And I want to get get into that in some detail. Um, uh, and just to uh, round out, you know, your because you're, you're deep housing, mortgage finance. And before AEI... Uh, you were so I know I was, Annie for a while, but I, yeah. So I started out, uh, you know, in law school, and I've been in housing finance my entire career. Right. So I started out as uh, an attorney at the Michigan State Housing Development Authority. Became general counsel after a couple of years. Spent eight years there. Spent a couple of years at, at Mortgage Guarantee Insurance Corporation and mortgage insurer. Oh, I forgot then, that. You know, I'm on the board. I'm yes, the board. yes. I just came back from a board meeting from MJ. Well, and my I'll get to my son in a minute. Okay. Uh, and then I uh, went to Fannie Mae for five years. I was a senior vice president there for marketing and product management. And then I was uh, their first chief credit officer and executive vice president uh, for credit. And then um, I went into consulting for from 1989 to 2008. Uh, and um doing lots of different things, mm -hmm. uh, mostly on the single family housing finance side, but a little bit of multifamily. And, and then started up uh, with AEI in uh, uh, the housing policy. And I, I had kind of migrated uh, away from the legal work towards uh, policy early mm -hmm. on. Uh, but now in uh, uh, as happens, uh, this I was talking to Lori Goodman the other day about the mm -hmm. same thing, her daughter who now works at, I think, Freddie Mac, uh, but my son now works for Arch Mortgage Insurance. Oh, okay. And so uh, another mortgage insurer. Yeah, great. And my company. Yeah, uh, yeah sure. fabulous. And my company started there about six months ago. So uh, never imagined that he'd get into the mortgage business. Uh, uh, he just ended up uh, stumbling on uh, this great job and and uh, got it six months ago. So as uh, Tobias uh, said, who's the uh, assistant director at the housing center, uh my wife and I have been married. It'll be 50 years this year. And Congratulations. Thank you. And and uh, I've been in housing for ver the entire time. And so Tobias said, oh, great. Now Joan will get housing in stereo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's all you're going to be talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. yeah. But yeah. Lori said that her daughter never paid much attention to what Lori did. Uh, and then goes to Freddie Mac and then says, mom, 
they know you there. You're actually. Oh, <laughs> she's a legend. Yeah, I mean, sure. yeah. yeah. I had no idea. That's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, of course, Lori runs the Housing Finance Center at the uh, Urban Institute. So uh, you guys are great. And they they do fabulous work as well. I do a lot of work with them also. Uh, well, it's great to have you. Thanks. And we're going we're gonna to go deep into your work in housing, house prices and policy and uh, all of the above. But before we do that, we had a chock full, uh, a week of chock, a week that was chock full of economic data. And um, the uh, the data point at the top of the uh, of the list was GDP for the first quarter. And I thought maybe, Marissa, you can give us a rundown on what that GDP number uh, had to tell us about the economy. Yeah, it was uh, weaker than we were expecting. So GDP grew at 1.1% quarter over quarter on an annualized basis. We were expecting it to be about a percentage point higher and that was roughly what consensus was expecting also. So that's weak compared to the last couple of quarters. You know, we got 2.6% growth in the fourth quarter and 3.2% growth in the third quarter of last year. So significantly weaker. Um, within the details, consumption was quite strong. So personal consumption expenditures added almost two percentage points to GDP growth. Um other, or I'm sorry, they added, I was looking at the wrong quarter. Um, yeah, they added two and a half percentage points to GDP growth. Um, residential fixed investment, which I know we're going to talk about in the podcast that, uh, so this is investment in housing that subtracted a bit from GDP growth. And if you look at the prior quarters, residential fixed investment has now declined for eight consecutive quarters. Um, as you know, interest rates have have risen quite fast over the past year. Um, the other big component that moved the needle was the change in private sector inventories. That took away about 2.3 percentage points off of GDP growth. So it nearly offset the increase in GDP from consumption. Um, net exports added a little bit, but much weaker than we'd seen in the past couple quarters. And government spending was a bit of a support, adding nearly a, per, a tenth of a percentage point of, of growth to the overall GDP. Um, what else? The non-res fixed investment sector added to growth. So, you know, within fixed investment, Certainly housing is the weakness, but outside of housing, things look pretty good still. Um, so it was a pretty weak reading, you know, weaker than we were expecting for sure. And maybe some indication of what's to come over the next couple of quarters. Yeah, weak. So 1% ish, that's about yeah. half the economy's potential rate of growth, uh, which, which, is the, which is the rate of growth necessary to generate enough jobs to maintain stable unemployment. So if you if you stay here for very long, unemployment is going to start to notch higher. Uh, would you is that a good thing or a bad thing in the context of the current environment? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of in line with our slow session story, right? It's it's sort of what we're we've been talking about with we have still have positive growth, but it's it's slow, it's below potential. We're starting to see slowing kind of across the board and everything. We got a lot of releases this week. We got a lot of economic data. Um, you know, the housing market 
is a little shaky. Okay, I mean, okay, it wait, like go it back. Answer the question. But Answer the question. You're, you're, you're. I'm vacillating. You're, you're vacillating. Is it, is it good or bad? I mean, in the context of uh, we need to get inflation down, the Fed's on the war path, raising interest rates. What do you think? I mean, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, it's in that direct. It's it's supportive of getting inflation down. We want the, we do need the economy to slow. So, but tell, calling it good is never easy in this environment, right? You, you want growth, right? Um, I'm a little bit concerned with the consumption, the the mix, right? Consumption growing quickly, but investment pulling back. That's I don't see that as a as a positive, right? Consumption can be fickle, and you want the investment to continue for our future here. So. Oh, it's so I mean, I get, maybe it's my rose-colored glasses. I, I'm just saying that that, that number was, uh, let's say, don't say in the strike zone. Okay, let's say on script. Uh, you know, I, I mean, if the Fed were going to pick a number that it wanted, it'd say I want one percent. Yeah, but say, I also think the Fed would want slower wage growth, which it didn't get. And okay, okay, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that. But on the in terms of the GDP, in terms of the growth rate of the economy. They they got to you know pretty much what they want because consumers are hanging tough, you know they're doing their thing. I mean year over year real consumer spending growth is two percent. That's like you know exactly what you want. Uh, it, uh, some of the a fair amount of weakness was just inventories just drawing. You said uh, uh, less. In, I think you actually saw a decline in inventories. Didn't yeah. You? yeah, yeah, yeah. Which Sorry, is two and a quarter. Pretty good, right? Because that lays the foundation for better kind of conditions going forward, particularly in the manufacturing base where you know the inventories were becoming more of an issue. I, I agree with uh, you, Chris. The The one thing that makes me a little nervous is the investment spending on the equipment side, but it, it was fine in terms of intellectual property and it was fine in terms of structures, you know, that, that felt fine. So, and then government spending feels like it's starting to kick in a little bit. And that, I, I don't know if that's the infrastructure spending kicking in yet. I might be a little early for that, but that's going to happen here going forward. So, I mean, you know, if you were going to, Pick a number. Doesn't it, no? It doesn't come close. I agree. I agree in isolation, but I'm just worried about some of the other indicators that you, show yeah, that maybe okay. You're yeah. We can worry. Inflation we can worry. isn't isn't coming down as quickly. Yeah, what's and the trade off? Very but, well made. Yeah. yeah, we may get into a situation yeah. where we fall into a recession, or we see negative GDP growth, and in in core inflation is still you know, up around three and a half percent. All right. Let me ask you this. Uh, let me ask it this way. <laughs> what number would you have wanted to see? I mean, precisely what number would you have wanted to see? If, if you, I would you have know, liked our forecast to be correct at 2.1%. No, that was just a tracking <laughs> estimate. That was just a tracking estimate, right? That was, that's, that's what the, actually that fell interestingly enough when you got the uh, durable goods numbers, you know, the day before that showed investment was going to be weak and that pushed the tracking estimate down to, I think, one and a half. So I think the the actual consensus on the day and the Atlanta Fed wage uh, GDP tracker was one point one on the nose. So the consensus had come in, you know, because of those rep in trade data that we got in the, the day before. But OK. All right. Fair enough. Uh, did you want to bring up any uh, Marissa? The, you mentioned the ECI. Maybe you should talk about that for the employment cost index, because that 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 was more disappointing in the yeah. context of the current environment. Yeah. Um, a lot of data came out. But so we got the employment cost index for the first quarter. And this is the Fed's preferred measure of wages. 
because it controls for the mix of jobs created. And that that actually accelerated compared to the fourth quarter. So it was up 1.2% from the fourth quarter. It was 1.1% in the fourth quarter. That's for total compensation. Um, wage growth overall was stable. It was 1.2%, which is exactly what it was in the fourth quarter as well. Um, so that that uptick was mainly a reflection of an increase in benefit costs rather than compensation. So year over year now, we're looking at wage growth of 5%, which is you know about what it's been for the past six months. It was 5.1% in Q4 and 5.1% in Q3. So that was a little disappointing to not see more of a slowdown in wages, especially that's the one the Fed is, is keyed in on, right? Um, when they're looking at pressures coming from service sector industries and employers keeping wages high in those industries where the main input cost is labor. Yeah, Chris, is, is that uh, consistent with your take on it too? Yes, I'd say much, much more focus on the ECI than the GDP number to your previous question, right? GDP, yeah, it's got to keep an eye on it, but it's probably not going to sway the Fed's decision. This ECI certainly uh, much more important and the PCE, which I think we'll get to next. Uh, well, uh, much more important in, in what sense? In, in, terms, in terms of, of a, setting monetary a, policy? Yeah. If, that, oh, if that's I the objective, we're focusing on what trying to understand what the Fed is going to do next yeah. and what implications that could have for the economy longer term. Yeah. I think yeah, those I, are actually, the numbers to watch. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It feels like the job market's weakening to me. So, you know, feels like it's just a matter of time before that wage growth comes into more in a more fulsome way but yeah that five percent is too high we need three and a half percent i think to be more consistent right. with the Fed's target so it's got to come in more uh uh the pce what that felt like that was okay no the the core that's the consumer expenditure deflator this the uh the measure yeah, that deflator. actually decelerated right in in march it was 0.1 percent March, February to March, and that's core. I think was point three, excluding food. And core energy. was point three, right? Yeah. And that was unchanged from the previous month, so that didn't really budge. It was it was the yeah. headline that budged, yeah. Right. Um, of course, anything on that? No. Uh, Bernard Yaros wrote up the uh, summary for, for this one for us on our website, um, and he uh, indeed said that it stuck to script. In, in oh, March. did he? <laughs> He's using and, my language, I, is he? Yeah, okay. So I think that is, yeah. and I think that's that's the case. But yeah, obviously, still still concerning uh, in terms of the level. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think it's a good time to turn to housing because in the GDP number and in, in growth broadly, the uh, certainly housing is a drag on growth. It, it is in recession. Home sales, uh, construction. In house prices, Ed, Ed, how how would you just broadly characterize housing market conditions at this point? I mean, there's some optimism out there that it might be bottoming out. I mean, are you of that view? Uh, so you got two different pieces of it. One is home sales, which existing and new, and then you have home prices. Uh, home prices uh, have been much more resilient than. I was expecting, given interest rates at six and a half percent, give or take, mortgage rates uh, up from two and three quarters, three percent, uh, not too long ago, uh, and that's largely due to continued supply constraints, uh, 
which are severe in most of the country, particularly at the lower end of the market. And we'll be talking a lot about that over the course of this uh, uh, podcast. And um, but the 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 uh, inventory months remaining inventory are all very low at historic near historic lows. The, the historic lows were set during the pandemic, but if you go back forty years, uh, we're lower than you know thirty eight of those forty years. Um, and so that is keeping uh, uh, house price appreciation stronger than it otherwise would be. It has definitely slowed down on the home sales side, uh, particularly existing sales. That's way down. Uh, 30, 40 percent uh, from the measure we use. And, and I think the home sales numbers are, are somewhat similar. Uh, and that's just due in, in large measure to a lack of supply. Uh, you can't uh, sell what you don't have. Uh, there has been a bigger slowdown at the higher end of the market. Uh, that was really uh, the run up in the high end of the market was was uh, uh, unprecedented during the pandemic. Um, and so that uh, has definitely slowed down the activity, but again, it, it has had much less effect on home prices. Yeah, you uh, at the housing center at AEI produce your own house price index, and and it, it, very timely because you're out with March data, March 2023. Yeah, so you might say, well, why does the industry, you know, why do you need another house price index? There's already lots of them, and the the answer was uh, three or fourfold. One is we didn't like the latency of the other indices. Case-Shiller has got a tremendous amount of latency because while they will come out in um, April, they have come out in April, that and they'll call it February, it's actually an average of uh, December, January, and February, meaning it's actually February. And so uh, it has quite a bit of, of lag to it. Um, excuse me, it's actually January. So it has quite a bit of lag to it. Um, we come out with our March numbers. We came out with them, I think, uh, Monday or Tuesday of this week. Uh, and uh, so that was one reason. Another reason is that um, we wanted an index that just didn't break the market up into one third, one third, one third, or one quarter, one quarter, one quarter. We wanted to define price bins by the amount of leverage that was present market to market to market driving house prices because what we knew from the um, uh, uh, run up to the financial crisis, the low end of the market went up quite a bit faster and came down quite a bit more uh, during the correction uh, than the high end of the market. And the way we describe it is the high end of the market is left to their own devices more or less. Uh, if they want more leverage, they have to self-create it, take higher debt to income ratios, um, uh, put less money down, to leave them uh, uh, to buy a more expensive house potentially. And uh, people that uh, are not getting government assistance tend not to do that. They tend to be more circumspect when it comes to leverage. On the other hand, if you're at the bottom end of the market, the low end of the market, which is largely defined by FHA, they basically, those buyers tend to use most of the leverage, much of the leverage that's made available to them by the, the, the federal government and the, these agencies. Um, and so we consistently see low prices going up faster in general than, than high prices. That was turned upside down during the pandemic. I'll get back to that. And so we wanted an index that actually would track that. So we created one with four price bins, low, low, medium, medium, high, and high. And we actually define low as uh, metro by metro, quarter by quarter, what is the 40th percentile of an FHA home uh, 
a transaction that was insured by FHA, and that sets a dollar point. And then we take all of the sales below that dollar point and call that low. We take the 40th to 80th percentile and call that low medium. We know that basically largely represents first time buyers entry level because we also look at what percentage of that low and low medium are first time buyers and, and entry level as we call them. And it's about 75, 80%. On the other hand, the medium high and the high is everything, the medium high is everything above 80%. So it includes a little bit of FHA, but it's mostly Fannie and Freddie. And the top of the medium high is the Fannie Freddie loan limit divided by 1.25 to account for a 20% down, which is about the uh, average down payment at the high end of the Fannie Freddie loan limit. Again, that's done at a, a metro level, but there it's adjusted every year as those limits adjust. And then the high is everything above that. And so the high ends up being largely private portfolio lending with a smattering of Fannie and Freddie because that 20% calculation for down payment is imprecise. Um, and can I uh, can I just uh, just to sure. summarize because the, many of the listeners are uh, not as uh, deep into the weeds as uh, obviously you you are or we are. So what you've done is you've taken uh, uh, to construct your house price indices by price tier. You've broken the market into uh, where the mortgage financing is coming from. So and the leverage associated with that yeah, mortgage the, financing. The low end is FHA. That's FHA, Fannie, Freddie. And then the middle is kind of Fannie, Freddie, and the top right. is more the uh, banks, uh, other portfolio, so-called portfolio lenders that that uh, don't sell the loans to Fannie, Freddie, or the FHA, hold them on their balance sheet. And exactly. they tend to be jumbo loans, big loans to higher income households. That, that's kind of how you've done it. That's it. And we actually can measure the mortgage risk. We have a mortgage risk index that measures the mortgage risk versus the, the 2006, 2007 stress event. Uh, that comes from layering, risk layering. And so we then can look at what the loan mortgage uh, default risk uh, built in from a, a just the risk characteristics into each price spin. And it orders itself, as you'd expect. Right. The low price spin has the highest risk, uh, the high price spin has the least. So the third reason we do it mm -hmm. is the methodology we use. And I, I won't get into you know exactly how we do It's not that it's a secret, but it gets in really into the weeds. But we have a methodology that allows us to do it more quickly and do it across a much larger count of huh. transactions. Um, this is repeat sales, or, right? Your index is repeat sales? Well, it is repeat sales, but we call it a quasi-repeat sale. Okay. We're using an AVM for one sale to create one sale point. Um, and we're using the actual sale to create the other. So, ABM being the automated valuation model. Yes. So there's so a model determined house price, not a transaction, actual transaction. And so normally when you do a, uh, a repeat sales, you have to throw out most of the sales because you can't connect the two. Interesting. Uh, and so we're able to connect a very high percentage uh, each, each month. And so uh, whereas Kay Schiller publishes, I think, 18 or 20 metros, again, with a lag, we publish 60. And we can publish on an annual basis, we can do it down to the census track level. So it just gives us a lot more data to slice and, and dice. And uh, so we like that's, that's cool. that. That's cool. Uh, we, we actually could uh, construct a repeat sales index uh, as well. And we, we have March data. Chris, you want to describe the March data? I, I want to I'll have Chris describe the results of our March house price. And I'm curious how it lines up with yours. Uh, do, you, do you recall? 
Yeah. Have you looked yeah. at it very carefully, Chris? Yeah. Yep. So we showed a uh, half a percentage point a decline in March. So that's that is quite substantial. Um, year over I mean, year constant quality. Uh, year over year, we're at one point four percent. Let me see if I can. Okay. That's month one, to month down month to half month. a that's point. Not, March was down half a point in yeah. March. Yeah, that's right. And uh, year over year, one point three percent growth oh. still, um, yeah. but certainly decelerating from the double digit uh, pace. Peak to trough, our index suggests um, prices nationally are down 2.2%. So what was your number year over year, Chris? 1.3. Yeah, we're at 2.3 for March year over year. And month to month, we're at, um, hold on a second. Month over month, we're at 1.4%. Is that up? Positive? Up? Up? And that was up, well, it was about flat with February, which was year, month over month, 1.5%. Oh, okay. So these are month over month numbers. Um, and oh. what we do, one other thing that we do uh, hmm. that is pretty unique is we we utilize the optimal blue uh, rate lock data yeah. to track in real time because we get the data daily, uh, but we aggregate it up weekly. And so on Monday, we have last week's uh, uh, rate lock. And so a rate lock is somebody buys a house and then they, uh, and they're getting a purchase loan and they do a rate lock. A few days later, they apply, do a rate lock, and we get that information, which includes a lot of information about the transaction uh, at an anonymized uh, level. And so we're able to do two things with those data. One is we can track uh, volume uh, and slice and dice that quite a bit. Um, and uh, and so we publish uh, rate lock volume data for cash out, rate and term, by agency, uh, purchase, and all of that. And I've been doing that for, um, I think we go back about four years because that's how far the data go back. But secondly, we're able to take the individual transactions, uh, aggregate them up to a national level, and then we create a, a proxy. It's not a proxy for what turns out to be our constant quality uh, year over year, month over month, uh, HPA that we use from the public records data, we're actually able to create a proxy of that. So uh, last uh, this past Monday, for example, uh, here we are in April, we have an April number, um, we have a May number, and we have an early June number because mm. loans that uh, had yeah. uh, rate locks last week, uh, most many of them will be closing in early June. Um, and, and what's it saying? Do you know? Uh, I think uh, for early June, we're down to about zero year, okay. uh, year, year over year. So still yeah. weakness. Yeah. And, and so we, we actually think that um, we've already passed the worst in terms of the correction. Uh, we had a, about a 5% correction that happened pretty quickly in the latter part of last year. Uh, peaked it nationally. I think it peaked in July. Some regions of the country, particularly out west, it peaked in in May and June. Um, but uh, we now see uh, on a month over month basis that is reversed. So that five percent decline that we sort of built up over July, August, September, October, November, and probably December, we've now had some month over month positive numbers. Well, starting in uh, uh, July. We're going to be. We think we're going to start seeing some modestly positive numbers in terms of HPA month over month, 
but they're going to be offsetting last July, which are negative numbers. So that's going to start bringing. Oh, okay. So you're, you're saying that back up. you're sensing some stabilization of pricing and you actually think the price declines, do you think they're over? Do you think? I, I think they're, ba- unless something happens uh, where interest rates break out of the six and a half range, or there's something else that happens with the economy. We also think that unemployment uh, will have minimal minimal impact on increasing the supply of homes, which comes when people um, either uh, pull mm-hmm. out of the market or go into distress. We we think it would take unemployment of five and a half percent for that to have an impact. So we're still two points away mm-hmm. from that. Uh, we're a long seem to be a long way from having unemployment impacted. So we're back to this supply issue. There's nothing on the horizon, immediate horizon, that says there's going to be more supply. Yeah. Okay. So I want to come back to that. I do want. I want to say one thing about our house price data that I observed. Uh, just to, just pointing this out. There's 400 plus metropolitan areas in the country, so we, we create HPI house price indices for all of them. Uh, Four fifths of them, eighty uh, percent, have experienced declines. Twenty percent of the markets have not. Philly house prices have not declined, just pointing that out. And Vero Beach, Florida, no price declines in Vero Beach, Florida. Can you? Who, li- who lives in Vero Beach, has a place in Vero Beach? Uh, <laughs> guilty, guilty. Yeah. yeah. It's because the, the seaweed hasn't, uh, hasn't seaweed. affected the price yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, so I was very, very happy to see that. Very <laughs> Of course, there's a lot of volatility in the data month to month because of trend. And, and Vero doesn't have as many transactions as some of these other bigger Florida markets does. So that may be may be part of it. But just 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 pointing to that, Chris. You heard uh, you heard uh, Ed. He doesn't think he, uh, that there's going to be any more price declines or any significant more price declines. So what, what do you? Th- and it, obviously, nationally on a national basis. On a national basis, national. yeah. And a we national basis. Most the, we track the top sixty. We look at more, but we track the top sixty month by month. And um, we, we've seen a pretty, on a month over month basis, yeah. we've seen a, a pretty consistent shift to increases. Yeah. What, what do you think? Uh, you want to describe our forecast to Ed and, and, and how, how do you feel about it, uh, the forecast in the context of what's Ed saying and everything else you're observing? Yeah. Yeah. So our forecast is a bit uh, more negative, right? We have a five to 10% peak to trough decline uh, baked in the forecast, five to 10, because it does depend on which specific house price index we're looking at, but uh, across the majors, the FHFA, RMHPI, and the Case-Shiller, that's it's about the range. Uh, I mentioned we're down about 2% uh, so far based on the MHPI, so still more to go. Um, I agree that the supply is, is, is limited, uh, but the affordability remains a real issue, and our model is a fundamentals-based approach, and it's, it's looking at that price-to-income uh, ratio, looking at other factors, the interest rates in making this determination. So by our measures, we the market is substantially overvalued still because of the 40% run-up in prices over the last couple of years. So it would take time for um, those prices to re-equilibrate with incomes, especially with incomes projected to slow in terms of their growth. So yeah, we're, we're expecting uh, prices to, to you, remain negative for uh, let me say we, part of this the, a lot of assumptions, obviously, but two yep. key ones. One, that fixed mortgage rates stay around 6.5%, 30-year fixed. Through the end of the year, they start to come back down next year to 55 by the end of the uh, uh, 2024. And the other is no recession. A weak economy, virtually no growth in jobs, unemployment starts to notch higher. 
but no recession. And, and with that, we get peak to trough declines in, in the entire market, you know, uh, from A to Z of almost 10. In the FA, in the Fannie Freddie part of the market, probably what, six, seven, eight, something like that. Less. Uh, uh, definitely, we, yeah. we do do uh, price tiers that are. Uh, equal segments, so one third, one third, one third, and clearly the uh, the price declines are really concentrated in the higher end of the market. We see virtually no price decline uh, in the bottom end of the segment because I view because my view is that that's really driven by that affordability, right? You have people who may be trading down. I right? can't buy the, the the higher priced home. I still want a home, so I'll I'll compete right. uh, for that lower end of the market. So that's holding very strong, and the and the, the supply is very limited. At that end, so, so, so I do I mean, agree with that. I mean, we see for the peak to trough, I said five percent, which is at the lower end of your mm-hmm. five to ten. We see zero year over year for December two thousand twenty-three, um, and we see I think it's three percent positive for two thousand twenty-four year right. over year. Um, and but but on the supply or on the low uh, using mm-hmm. our price bins, um, the uh, high end, this is year over year for March. The high was minus 0.4%. So call okay. it zero uh, year over year. Medium high was a 0.6. Low medium was 3.1. And low was 6.1. And again, our low and all of these are based market by market by market based on the the leverage component that, that we uh, described earlier. And um, and so that six percent on the low end, uh, you know, back in 2019, that would have been viewed. Forget inflation, which is in, you know, these are nominal prices. But back in 2019, six percent would have been considered a very healthy increase um, in house prices, you know, even at the low end. And so uh, we're just not. We we saw it slow down, and now it's starting to speed speed up. Uh, we think what you said, uh, Chris, is is right. You know, you have people can move down market; they can't move up market. Um, and so that's a, a factor there. Uh, you have the work from home. We, we think of the tailwinds where we view work from home as a huge tailwind, uh, which allows people that normally would not have driven, you know, the drive to your qualify uh, mantra. Well, now they're driving because they don't need to be in the office as much. And now they're competing with people who would have been driving to qualify. And so you have a lot of pressures on the lower end of the market. And maybe we'll have some time to talk about this, but we've done a tremendous amount of work to connect the displacement pressure that comes from house prices being out of sync with incomes um, at a metro level and the displacement rate in terms of homelessness as measured by the point in time homelessness rate across uh, 360 uh, uh, uh categories that uh, geographic categories that HUD tracks. And we have found in looking at 30 plus different metrics, the single most important predictive metric to predict the rate of homelessness by these uh, 360 areas uh, is the median house price to median income in that area. And it swamps all the others. R squared is 78%. And uh, so we built that into what we call our good neighbor index, but maybe we can get into that a little bit later. Well, that's a, 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 a very important point. And, and one of the questions is whether the price pressures in the lower end of the market are related more to demand or to supply. 
So, you know, my sort of uh, narrative or uh, thinking has been that it, it, since the financial crisis, uh, home building has been relatively constrained, except up until right before the uh, right uh, recently in the pandemic, uh, before the run up in mortgage rates. Uh, but, you know, for most of the period after the financial crisis, home building has been relatively uh, muted, constrained for lots of different reasons. Uh, particularly at the low end of the market, we, you know, the builders, the particularly publicly traded builders, focus on the high end because that's where they could make the most money. Return on equity is a lot higher. The low end very difficult. Also during the uh, during the financial crisis, because of the hit that local state government uh, took, uh, they uh, raised their fees on on permitting and uh, and uh, the fixed costs of. Of actually putting up a home rose quite significantly, so it made it much more difficult for builders to build those homes at the lower end of the market. So, my my kind of thought process has been: we really need to focus on the supply side of this market, try to figure out how to create more supply, particularly at the lower end of the market. Does that resonate with you, Ed, or do you have a different take it, on that? Yes, I would exactly. And we've been most of our work now is on the supply side of the market, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I would push back on two things. Okay. Uh, one is uh, back in 1970, California was normal in house prices to income. San Francisco was just about normal, and the problems that have emanated largely from the West Coast, also up in New York and the, some of the Northeast, have really been took hold there and then started spreading <clears throat> other parts of the country. Um, and the, when you're at a, a, a median home price to median income at a, at, a, at a metro level of about three or less, you have virtually no homelessness. Uh, and But once you get, you start moving up from that, we can actually track how that works. California has been above that level for a very long time. They started getting above that level in the 70s and then the 80s and the 90s. And now they're at, in San Francisco, 10 times area median and their area median is the highest in the country, uh, you know, San Jose, San Francisco. So that's number one. This this has been building for a long time. We have a lot of information on why it's been building, but it, but it has been building. Uh, the second thing um, is you talked about the builders. There is a perception that the builders rape and pillage which is how I would describe a little bit of what you just said. They, they, they're going to go. Well, I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> no, <you said laughs> the record. I don't even mean to imply that. They, they're just doing basic economics. You know, you yeah, well, build well, where you're going to make the money. Yeah. Well, but again, let's push back against that. So yeah. we took 540 counties around the country uh, in 200 metros, and we mapped out in a scatter plot <clears throat> uh, what the gross living area was of single family detached. We also did it for single family attached, but detached. What the gross living area was of the unit uh, was the y-axis and the x-axis was the as-built development. Uh, based on the square footage lot, how many lots do you get per acre? And that became the as-built development. Uh, and we found uniformly, it was an 85, 88% correlation that there was a gradient that was very strong as the, the um, um, gross living area declined, the gross living area declined as the as-built density increased. And so what's really driving this is zoning. If you don't allow higher density, which is a yeah. controlled thing by the government ent entities, not generally the builder, it's the government entity. If you allow higher density, even in single family detached, we call that greenfield development. We looked at 20 years worth of development 
brought everything current to the present value with the automated valuation and did that. We also then said, okay, now we're going to have the y-axis be the, the value of the house today. And the x-axis is going to be the same as built density. We got the same gradient. And so we can see one of the things that we say as we talk to um, local and state governments around the country is if you allow higher density, even for single family detached, if you go from four to six units, if you go from five to seven units an acre, six to eight, whatever, you get a massive increase in the number of units, you get a reduction in the size, but still being very ample given the household sizes today, and you get a reduction in price. And it's all driven by you the local official, it's not driven by the builder. Oh yeah, and I, I, I you're you're absolutely right. I, I I should have said also the obviously the permitting is a big factor here and and what's going on. And that that also changed. It's been building over a long period of time. Yes. Uh, I think it got much more serious, significant, you know, around the financial crisis. But I totally agree with you. Per- but we went back 20 years with this. Yeah. We went back 20 years so that all the houses that we were looking at had no depreciation issue because they were all 20 years or less. Uh, so what our answer is, is light touch density, which is uh, um, a, sm- a small lot development, we call that small lot greenfield development under 5,000 square foot lots, more than eight per acre, um, you know, preferably 10 or 12 on single family, uh, 30 units an acre on townhouse, uh, preferably. We also include uh, uh, two unit, three unit, four unit, up to, you know, eight units, basically up to about 20, uh, 22 units an acre uh, if you do it in density. Uh, it includes accessory dwelling units uh, and everything in between, cottage housing, you name it. Uh, and so we've done a tremendous amount of research on that. We have quantified how many more housing units. We know what the conversion rate is. We know what the economics are. We, we've calculated the economics uh, uh, area by block, property by property. Uh, so we've got a model that tells us, uh, is this economically feasible to convert uh, as an infill to higher density if it were legal? And then what the optimum number of units would be? And so how many units you get? Why is this important? Well, California is doing a lot here. They have a lot more to do that they need to do. Uh, Washington State just passed a law that uh, just a week ago, it's on the governor's desk that would allow um, uh, uh, light touch density in uh, virtually throughout Washington state and residential areas. There are some exceptions, but it's there's a few and far between. Uh, and significantly, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, passed an ordinance la- late last year, it takes effect uh, June 1st, that would um, legalize by right two and three units throughout the city uh, in all residential areas. And uh, they already have a history of doing some higher density in about three or 4% of the residential areas. Um, and we just finished a, a, a project that we can actually visualize where those units have been built in the last 20, 30, 40 years under this uh, zoning. Because we think once this uh, zoning ordinance takes effect, the, the real driver is making it legal. The financing isn't the issue. The labor isn't the issue. The lumber isn't the issue. It's making it legal to build higher density. Once you do that, the private market, if allowed to do it by right, will figure out a way to do it. Let me ask you a question around that. I mean, you've got some good examples of communities moving in that direction, but 
pretty universally, it's very difficult uh, to get lo local governments to do the kinds of things that you're describing. What can be done here to help facilitate this 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 effort, this transition? I mean, if it left to its own devices, it doesn't feel like that's going to go anywhere, at least not very quickly. Well, is there something I, that can be done. To, maybe hinting at what can the federal government do? Is that? Or, or, yeah, I mean, what I think can the, we do here? Because the short it, answer I, on the federal yeah. government in my book is nothing. Nothing. Okay. Because the federal government was the cause of this problem. The federal government created the current current zoning system that is called exclusionary zoning. They created it in 1922. It was created for nefarious purposes to keep uh, blacks and other, quote, undesirables out of uh, neighborhoods that were being built in the 20s. And um, we were living with that uh, decision from 100 years ago by the federal government, the Department of Commerce. Um, so I, I think it's an education process. It's a, a grassroots effort. Uh, we work with uh, groups all over, uh, uh, YIMBY groups, uh, other uh, think tanks, um, and you know different organizations, the home builders, um, the, the realtors, the chambers of commerce, et cetera. There are lots of groups interested in this. It is trench warfare, but the way I describe it, Mark, is we have the wind at our back. Um, we, we know we're getting having victories. Uh, Arlington, uh, Virginia just passed a, 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 an ordinance. Uh, it, it is trench warfare, but this is the United States of America and we have a republic and it's the laboratory of the states and, and then under the states. That's the way we operate. It, it may not operate as fast, but when the federal government does something, you get these results that you live to regret. And I could list 20 others other than the zoning, but I regret them all. Okay, got it. Okay, I hear you uh, loud and clear. Um, it feels unsatisfying somehow, but I hear you. We're making uh, progress. So you have yeah. to look as the glass is half full, not half empty. Got it. Got it. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's play the game, the statistics game, and we'll come back to housing. Uh, but in in the game, obviously, uh, uh, I think we're all going to pick statistics that uh, hopefully are related to housing, mortgage, finance. Not necessarily, but. Um, just, just saying. And the game, of course, is we each put out a statistic. The rest of us try to figure out what that is through clues, deductive reasoning. Um, and the best statistic is is one that's not so easy that we all get it quickly, not so hard that we never get it. And if it's apropos to housing, uh, uh, mortgage finance, uh, all the better. Um, okay. With that as introduction, uh, I think uh, we always begin with Marissa. Marissa, you want to go first? Sure. Go ahead. Fire away. Okay. Um Minus 0.4% in March. Okay. Is it uh, one of the uh, economic releases that came out? It is. This week? Okay. Today? No. Okay. Is housing related? No, it's not. Ah. Oh, okay. okay. Throw us off. All right. Yeah. They come from the GDP report. But we did dance around it at the beginning of the discussion. So we did we did refer to this. It's not. Is it? It's not GDP in the GDP numbers. It's not. No. Okay. Uh, and we didn't. Um, hmm. Okay. And it's a, st a government statistic that came Correct. out this yeah. week. Is it yeah. from the PC? No. 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 Uh, minus point four. <laughs> um, can you give us a hint that doesn't give it away? Well, we were talking about it in the context of GDP. We we mentioned it. You mentioned it when we were talking about the GDP numbers. 
wage related? Uh, no. No. What else? What? Jeez, Louise. Uh, what were we talking about, Chris? You recall? Talking about the components, the investment, consumption. No, but she's saying it's not GDP. It's not in the GDP re- release. Uh, but we were talking it's related. About it. No, it's not. It, it's not in the GDP. Inventories release. related inventories. No. 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 Um, <laughs> goodness gracious! Sakes alive! That this is a tough. You're one. like you're ECI. You're, it has. Uh, no, she said no, not wages. Not wages. It's wages. Not wages. <laughs> it's not. I wages. want it to be. <laughs> Can you give us like what what's part of the economy we should be thinking about? Or so would that be- we were discussing it when we talked about marking down our estimate of Q1 GDP. Oh, investment, durable because goods. It's There a, you go. Okay, okay. durable goods. Oh. Okay, it's in the durable goods numbers. It is, yeah. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, so minus 0.4, was that the, the core... Um, you know, uh, X, uh, defense X, um, transportation. Yeah. Okay. It's, okay. it's, All it's, right. it's durable goods. It's core durable goods right. orders for the month of March. So this is stripping out, you know, non-defense capital goods, stripping out aircraft orders, civilian and, and government. So it was down 0.4%. This was the second consecutive month of decline, but it's it this has actually declined four out of the five last months. So that suggests going back to this weakness in investment spending, right? In in private investment spending outside of even outside of housing. Not a good sign. And year over year, core durable goods orders are down. 2% or I'm sorry they're up 2% but that's the weakest positive reading that we've had since like the the worst of the pandemic since like March or April of 2020 and if you strip out the pandemic you have to go back to about 2011 to get a weaker year on year reading in core goods so you're you're this is you're this is making you nervous that the uh, the businesses are starting to pull back on equipment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. And this is forward looking, right? Because these are orders. Yeah. So we could also look at shipments, uh, which were at, were also down for two consecutive months. And this is this is kind of current receivables, right? But the orders can go out six, nine, twelve months. So this suggests. Um, you know, potential weakness coming in in the quarters ahead as well. Yeah, and I guess also in the context of the banking crisis and the fallout that's going to have on credit and uh, particularly for small business, I guess this would be the place to really, you know, let me uh, uh, quickly, uh, one, one, one thought was, you know, his, generally recessions, I think I'm getting this right, recessions are led by the consumer. The consumer packs it in, stops spending, and we go into recession. Could it be the case that, and, and there's certainly, that doesn't feel like that's what's happening now. I mean, consumers are cautious, but they're, you know, they're spending like they typically do uh, for the most part. Could it be that, you know, this recession is different like everything else about this current environment and it's the it's businesses that kind of lead us uh, into recession? Is that kind of, is that a possibility? Is that what you're thinking? No, I mean, no? I think, okay. is it a possibility? Sure. But yeah. I, I still think that there's, you're right. I mean, there, we got data on consumer spending and income this week too. I won't go into it in case that's somebody's statistic, but right. 
um, you know, that shows resilience among consumers, but we've also gotten data on credit markets and consumer borrowing, and that is turned for sure. So balances are now falling compared to where they were a year ago when you look at a variety of lending products. So to the extent that consumers may be drawing down any savings they have, it also looks like they're pulling back on on debt. That could also, that could be supply and demand, right? It could also be banks making it more difficult for consumers to take on more debt. Um, Interest rates are higher. Lending standards appear to be tightening across a variety of products. So, I mean, I think eventually this is going to come down to the consumer. We Mm. noted the labor market seems to be weakening too. I I would just add, uh, Marissa, lending standards in one area are weakening reasonably fair amount. And that's mortgages, uh, mm-hmm. government mortgages, Fannie, Freddie, FHA. FHA lowered their premium. Uh, that's going to be increased demand uh, and against tight supply. Uh, Fannie, Freddie uh, just changed uh, their LLPAs or loan level pricing adjusters, uh, tilting more towards high risk borrowers. Sorry, uh, yeah. That's going to increase demand there. Uh, all of this is going to feed into that low end of the market where there's no supply and house prices are already going up 6% year over year. It's an interesting point. So Ed, did you want to take a crack at this game? Sure. I'm going to throw out, uh, let me get the number in front of me here. It's obviously okay. something we publish because I don't follow the other. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Fair enough. That's, oh no, this is a problem. So we're not going to get it, Ed. Problematic. We talked about it quite a bit. So yeah. let's, I can give okay. you one hint and we'll see. Um, but um the number is, um, uh, hold on a second. I just picked up the wrong thing. Um, okay. Uh, the number is uh, 2.1. And it has something to do with housing, obviously. Uh-huh. Is, uh, it a, is it related to your house price uh, estimates? It is not related to the house price estimate. Is it okay. the risk index you referred to? No. No. Is it like month's supply on the market? Yes. Ah, ah. Okay. which which month's supply? Oh, Jesus! Well, wait, it's two point one months. Think about it. Right, existing. Well, no, it's it's all yes, existing. But what what portion of the market? Oh, is it the low end of the market? Yeah, it's the yeah, low okay. end of the market. So again, um, the oh, by, uh, by the way, uh, Marissa, that that was pretty good. That was impressive. That's pretty yeah. impressive. I yeah. the reason I brought it up that. is yeah, we did poorly, but yeah. The, uh, you have buyer's market, seller's market, and you have an equilibrium point. The equilibrium point at the low end, we estimate to be around five months, give or take. So three, 2.1 months is a rip-roaring seller's market mm. uh, for the low end. And again, that is not as low as it got down to 1.1 months, believe it or not, during the pandemic uh, in 2021, maybe early 22. But um, 2.1 months is probably the lowest that it had ever been uh, we started tracking 2012 through uh, sometime in 2020. It is a rip-roaring low end of the market, seller's market. And again, you add more leverage or demand through the government loosening up credit, reducing the cost of credit, uh, as FHA did, and you will end up uh, adding fuel to the fire. Ask, and I'm just know- curious, what's when you say the low end of the market on a national average basis, what cutoff are we talking about in terms of like the well again we don't have a national cutoff because it's 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 metro by metro metro by metro at 40 the 40th percentile of fha 
uh, 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 buyers uh, 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 spread across the entire market, all homes below that point. But it's probably, uh, you know, 300,000, probably yeah. less than that, 250, something like that. Yeah. I, I have, again, we don't have a, a national number per se. It's, it's market by market. Hey, Ed, um, just to push back a little bit on your point uh, about FHA premium cut, and this is, a, you know, uh, stating what the, the, the argument here is for cutting the premium. It was 30 basis points, 0.3 percentage points. Uh, one argument was, look, the FHA had uh, built up a significant uh, reserve uh, based on the premiums that they were charging. You know, typically the kind of the rule of thumb is you, you want at least two percent of two percent was the minimum mark. minimum but they minimum. were at eleven percent they were at eleven yeah, percent but is what's the right number is a good question but two percent was the statutory minimum yeah but eleven percent is extraordinary by any measure that's the reserves that they have built up so they're saying hey look at the premiums I'm charging I'm building up this massive reserve and that doesn't feel appropriate to me and I'm just going to cut it uh, at uh, 30 basis points and the second thing to demand Demand's gotten crushed because the 30-year fixed for the typical borrower, not the FHA borrower, the typical borrower is six and a half. That's just completely knocked everyone out of the market. So lowering the the mortgage rate by 30 basis points, 0.3 percentage points. I mean, I'm not I'm not juicing demand. I'm just trying to cushion the blow from the surge in interest rates that have occurred. Well, you are juicing demand, and we did a, a very a, a, a in-depth paper, published paper on this back when FHA lowered their premium 50 basis points back in 2013, I think it was, 13 or 14. And we had a strong, not as strong as today by any stretch, but a strong uh, seller's market back then. FHA announced that it was going to bring in all these buyers. It was going to, excuse me, uh, new buyers, FHA, yada, yada. It was going to, you know, be, be so affordable. And we said, no, no, that's not going to happen. It's going to drive house prices up and they're going to poach uh, customers from the other agencies. And so we did an in-depth study and we found two things. One is I think 70% of the 50 basis points was translated within months, months into higher prices and we could demonstrate that uh, empirically uh, around the country. And secondly, I believe something like 80% of the increase in borrowers that FHA experienced came from Fannie, Freddie, rural housing, and um, uh, VA, uh, less to less extent VA. And rural housing lost 40% market share in three months. So what is the purpose of one government agency cutting prices in order to basically pick up share from another government agency. And the result in a seller's market like we have is going to be to drive prices up, not 6%, but maybe 7.5%, all things equal. What we suggested at FHA and they ignored it was rather than keeping with the very high risk lending, which FHA does day in and day out, it's extraordinarily high risk. They are the subprime lender for the country. Uh, the, the federal government is a guarantor. Rather than doing that, you could have created a, um, a premium structure that had 30-year rates over here that either stayed the same uh, and you used the excess that you thought you had on 20-year term loans that would have built wealth for uh, these uh, hapless borrowers that get FHA loans and have a very hard time over time building wealth because of the high defaults and everything else. Um, and you would have lowered the risk profile at the same time and 
you wouldn't have created the upward price pressure because you would have uh, been soaking up that benefit with the cost of doing the 20-year loan, um, the, the added uh, monthly payment. And so we had we suggested that and it was ignored. Uh, we suggested the exact same thing to uh, Sandra Thompson uh, at FHFA uh, before they did the LLPAs and it was also ignored. Uh, it, the, the problem is the government's go-to policy is how do we do something that leads to more risky loans? And so if you look at what, FH, what Fannie and Freddie did with FHFA, it will increase the number of risky loans and decrease the number of lower risk loans. FHA will do the same thing. They will be increasing in the marketplace because they will absorb customers from the other agencies. They will be, and we found also that as they absorb them, those borrowers take out riskier loans because they're available. And so we don't think that's a, a sound policy. Okay. So a, a lot to unpack there. We need like three podcasts for that. So we're definitely going to have, have you back, but we're running out of time because I know you have, you have to catch a plane, uh, but I do want to go to Chris and do one more stat because I only because I've performed very poorly so far and I got to redeem myself. So, <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll give you the, uh, yeah. go ahead. What do we call go it ahead. the overhanded softball here? The, uh, minus 5.2%. <laughs> to me, to me, to me. Yeah. Go ahead. Minus, what is it? Pending minus 5.2%. Pending home sales. Pending home. Hey, you got it. Marissa's on fire. Oh, you're on a roll, Marissa. You get oh, the sorry, Mark. Wait, wait a second. Wait a Next second. Next week. You're not you're not using ChatGPT, or are you over there? <laughs> Thanks. Maybe she is ChatGPT. Right. Could be ChatGPT. We're in the matrix, oh, man. <laughs> She's like ra raising the bar here. I'm gonna yes. have to get on. Yeah, I didn't even have a chance to digest the minus five point two. Didn't hear the question, and she was giving the yeah, answer. Yeah, she was giving the answer. What the hell, boy? You she definitely deserves bar. a cowbell. Yeah. Yeah, get the cowbell out. That's so, okay. that's so funny. Um, okay. Uh, do I guess we have time for one? More. Should I do mine? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you're, yeah. well, you're not going to be able to answer it. So you're, it's not, you can't. Yeah, I know. I know. So, like, why do it? Yeah. You know, why do it? <laughs> uh, I, I, well, it's a little hard, uh, but I'll, I'll just throw it out there. And then and, uh, we are running out of time. But here, here there's two numbers, 5.9 and 4.9. And it is related to a statistic that came out today. It's, Are these percent changes or? Oh, yeah. 5.9. I'm sorry. 5.9% okay. and 4.9%. Oh, is it the ECI? Is it in, in the, the ECI? It's in it's, the ECI. Yep. Is it wages and benefits? It is total compensation. Or total compensation and wages year uh -huh. over year? For a certain sector, apropos oh, low end, no, no, civilian construction. private workers. Construction. Oh, construction. oh, construction. It's okay. construction. Yeah, so it's it's the employment cost index, total compensation, so wages, salaries, and benefits for the construction sector year over year. It's up uh, four point nine percent, and in the quarter Q one. 2023, it's up 5.9% annualized. It's, it's, I, I, I look accelerating. Yeah. I looked across most sectors, a high, certainly the, the large sectors, none of them are accelerating, you know, either they're kind of uh, the growth rates are stable or they're coming in. The one exception that I found was construction, mm -hmm. construction. So that goes to, you know, the 
still very tight labor market there. We're, you know, we've, we're, only last month did we see any job loss in construction. Uh, perhaps goes to, you know, single family is down, but multifamily is booming. And also we've got a lot of public infrastructure that is now kicking into gear because of the infrastructure plan. So, uh, and we still have labor market issues related to the pandemic, you know, going back to the, the difficulty of getting uh, immigrants, you know, uh, here into the construction trade. So a lot going on there. And it also uh, just highlights an, another broader point is that uh, construction, the industry is, uh, has shown very poor productivity growth over the years, uh, very difficult, at least as measured, to increase productivity. And so that you know, makes it uh, you know, very difficult to, uh, uh, to keep labor costs down. So I thought that Mark, was- uh, you said we'd have a moment to talk about maybe the supply issue. Uh, yeah, sure, fire so, away. Again, we, we've come up with what we call light touch sensing. And what we have found- is that as you move from McMansion, so the the exclusionary zoning that we have basically promotes McMansions because that's the highest and best use. And by definition, they have to, and it's based on if you tear down a house, you have to have a lot that's worth a lot to justify tearing down the, the lower priced value that's on it. Um, and you have to replace it with an expensive house. And that's why you get McMansions. Builders don't pick McMansions to put on those lots. The economics drive it based on the zoning. And if you were allowed two units, you would get a duplex instead. If you allow three, four, five, you'd get whatever. In general, it marches up. And what we found looking at Seattle is as it marches up, the uh, total amount built increases, uh, the total value uh, built increases, but the per unit value declines. And eventually, once you get above three or four units on a parcel, it actually gets less expensive than a unit that you're replacing, which means you're getting rid of one unit and replacing with three or four, you know, three additional or maybe four additional at lower price points. And that's what you need in order to get this market healthy and have an abundant supply of housing. You need to be building in that middle point and below um, and that then gets the filtering going, and that then reduces the displacement pressure that leads to homelessness. Is yeah, so I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I guess the only place where I uh, might diverge a bit is, you know, in terms of policy. Maybe there's a way to facilitate more of that more quickly because that is definitely a, a big, big problem. Big problem. Hey, Ed, I want to, I want to, because I, uh, I, I know you. I want to be respectful. I know you have to catch a plane. I, I do want to say the one thing that. I find so endearing about you is how so excited and interested you are in what you do. Uh, it's infectious. I mean, I, I, I mean, how can you not like housing after listening to you? Cause you well, love you it so much. My wife, uh, uh, the, uh, if you have it for 50 years, then it becomes a little different. Oh, but, okay. uh, the, the reason is literally every day, I'm getting stuff out of what I call our laboratory. And mm. every, this morning I got these maps that Arthur put together. And every day we call it, we start with data, we turn data into information, but the key is to turn information into knowledge. Mm. And so every day I'm getting knowledge coming up from the laboratory. And then you turn that knowledge into policy and action. And that's what I find exciting. Well, you, you you certainly are exciting, and you make everyone around you more excited, which is thank you know you. you know that's a rare quality. So uh, thank you. That. And with that, uh, dear listener, we're going to call this a uh, 
a podcast to talk to you next week. Take care now. <laughs>